Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Evan, Aaron, hello. How are you? Aaron, who is on the uh, program? On the program today is uh, Mitchell Prothero, someone whose byline I have been enjoying for many years. In fact, I was able to rewind my Gmail to show that I had once invited him on the show in 2013. That didn't work out, but this did. He's written for Vice, for BuzzFeed News. He uh, worked out of Iraq for a period. He wrote one story that has always stuck with me where he went paintballing with members of Hezbollah. He is a foreign correspondent and a a war correspondent, but who I think brings sort of like a unique personal flavor to the stories he does. His most recent project is called Gateway. It's with um, the podcast studio Project Brazen. And it's about how Europe is becoming a narco state as various cocaine cartels uh, have come to influence uh, politics, how the ports operate. And it kind of centers mostly around this Moroccan gang that operates out of the Netherlands. The leader is now on trial. There's been threats against politicians. A journalist was assassinated. It's turned into a pretty big story. And so this podcast is both a true crime story that's very, very entertaining about the rise to power uh, of uh, this guy, uh, Taki, and uh, a larger story about what happens when this much money starts flowing through these European port towns. I'm glad you got him. I'm also a big uh, Mitch Prothrow fan, reader, so I'm excited you had him on. This sounds like the kind of story that uh, you're real into, Aaron. I actually uh, binged this entire podcast straight through without even a five-minute break. I listened to it. It's it's not for people at home. It's I know the whole thing's probably like uh, three, three hours-ish long, so um, just uh, injected it straight into my arm, and I uh, hope they do a second season. Uh, We make this show with the people at Vox. Thanks very much to them. And now here's Aaron with Mitchell Prothrow. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast, uh, Mitch Prothrow. Nice to be here and thank you for having me. At risk of the fact that um, at the beginning of every podcast, I start talking about the past now, which is one of the hazards of doing a podcast for this long. I looked... And I originally invited you to come on this podcast more than 10 years ago. So I think you are our um, longest uh, standing uh, get that we've been tracking. And at that time, I looked in the email. I think you were living in Beirut or uh, had been living in Beirut. I came across an article that you had written, I believe, for Vice that was about paintballing with Hezbollah. Am I remembering that correctly? You are, but I don't remember you asking me to come on for that. 
I okay. remember a couple of years later when I was at BuzzFeed, I had done a big uh, project about ISIS in Europe. That's and right. And we had discussed it. And then we'd sort of planned to do a thing where, you know, like a launch sort of at the same time. And I don't think my editors realized that or they got impatient and just put it out one Sunday night without telling me. You are correct. The Hezbollah story was a couple years before that. But I guess I'm interested in the start, like what you've been up to in that decade in between. I was interested in your byline and the work that you were doing at the time and have continued to be interested because you seem like you were kind of like living out there in the field in places maybe where other people would fly in to do a story but not choose to live there. And I know that you've sort of done that in different places over time. So what brought you to Beirut in the first place a decade ago? It was, we even go back further. I was a congressional correspondent, like a cub reporter who, you know, was sort of interested in more goth and corruption and stuff like that, working in Washington, D.C. And I just gotten like in a national news level job when 9-11 happened. And I had kind of realized after a few years of fighting it out, D.C. reporting, that it wasn't for me. Like I had worked really hard to get there and then suddenly realized sort of the limits of what you could do. And when 9-11 happened, I just immediately was like, all right, I'm going to be a foreign correspondent. And that felt right to me. And within a year or so, there was an invasion of Iraq. I covered that. And in the middle of that, decided to move to Beirut to sort of base in the region to have a reasonably chilled out place to cover Afghanistan and Iraq and Gaza and stuff. So for younger reporters who might be listening, what did you realize was not for you about reporting in Washington and what was for you about living in Beirut? Covering the Middle East, because I basically really covered, you know, from Beirut covering the war on terror. Like I felt like what I'd learned in D.C. was an invaluable background that a lot of even my colleagues as foreign correspondents didn't really understand how the Senate Foreign Relations Committee works. And that stuff does end up mattering. It can seem like it doesn't when you're in Baghdad, but, you know, as we all know, that's a lot of the real power out there. Um, But what I'd figured out was that um, I was better at interviewing, like I kind of wanted to talk to more ordinary people. I felt a lot of what I covered, I covered the Senate, and I felt a lot of it was, you know, and this is a criticism other people have had, I'm not breaking ground here, is like it can feel like you're covering sports a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the things that I covered were really interesting, like a presidential recount. That was the first story, like my first week when I started, I had to go to Tallahassee and cover the recount. And so that stuff's really cool. But, you know, at the same time, you're grinding out on committee things. And I could tell I was better at the, as we'd say, the process stories that like people liked that aspect of me. I wasn't going to necessarily end up like a Robert Pear from the New York Times type figure who was just like the most unbelievably diligent reporter on healthcare, you know, knowing to the minutiae, he'd mark up bills himself. David Rogers at the Wall Street Journal at the time, I think he moved to Politico later. He was a budget expert that was ubiquitous. That was cool stuff people were doing. But other than that, you kind of had to play this sports game of like who's winning and who's losing. And I really just didn't find much satisfaction in that. And then once you start covering, like, people have been bombed, not to be presumptuous or pompous, like, it felt very, very real, or as the reporting in D.C. felt like it was a little surreal or fake. And I needed that at that time in my life. What was it like, like, your first few months in Beirut, kind of trying to establish yourself in uh, another country, another reporting environment without, like, a ton of network or people on the ground to, you know, rely on for story generation and that kind of stuff? Well, I had been working, by the time I landed in Beirut, I'd basically been working almost nonstop in Iraq for about a year. And so I'm staying in hotels in Jordan and stuff like that coming out. And at the time, Lebanon was occupied by the Syrians. So it was considered an incredibly sort of quiet place. So a bunch of people who knew that we were going to be spending the next like five years of our lives coming in and out of Baghdad, which is basically what happened to all of us even longer. We all looked around for a cool place to stay, particularly like, you know, women want to be able to go out without hijabs, alcohol. And so everybody kind of started popping into Beirut and setting up. But the intention was never really to cover Lebanon. (laughs) Right. It was to sort of chill out in between, you know, car bomb hell in Baghdad or covering different stuff in the region, which was pretty crazy back then. 
And uh, then, this, you know, Hariri got killed, the Syrians got kicked out, and suddenly it was like 1976 again at times. So you had this very surreal mix of lives where I would go and spend six weeks on embeds as a photographer in Iraq and Sadr City. Four hours later, let's say traveling, I could be back in my apartment in Beirut, meeting a friend for a drink in a nice French bistro. And then by the end of the night, a car bomb will have gone off across the city, and you're trying to figure out whether or not you should go cover it. So it was very, it was exciting, but it was also like crazy. Like, you know, you really needed to be psychologically able to really turn it off because you have to enjoy that moment with the friend in the bistro. But that's, it was accidental. Like I never went to Beirut to cover Lebanon. I never even, I ended up covering Gaza quite a bit, but I'd always said, I'm here for the, you know, American war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan, the fight against Al Qaeda and stuff like this. And inevitably you get drawn into the region. I spent 14 years there. And so, you know, Yemen and Gaza and all these other stories, Hezbollah and Lebanon, these all became just part of my beat. But it took a while because obviously I wasn't an Arabist and I didn't know very much about it. I was a DC political reporter. Did you have a consciousness early in that, you know, that first year in Iraq, this is going to go on kind of forever? Like, did you foresee like, oh, I need to look for a job when this is over? Or you're like, this is my job kind of forever now. I was pretty convinced that we were looking at least of like a wild 10 years on the war on terror, which was about how it played out. And then the Arab Spring popped off and sort of added some years to the end of that. Um, But, you know, it was pretty clear early on. And this was why it was such a tension when dealing with U.S. officials, because anybody who was really walking around on the ground knew what was happening, that the place was falling apart. The good guys that we were working with weren't necessarily very good. And the bad guys that were against them were like some of the most savage freaks on the planet. So it was just, you know, you could tell that and you could see the Iraqis getting worn down by it. So, yeah, we had a good sense that that was going to be the case. Where things popped off, that was always kind of a surprise. Like I worked Afghanistan a bunch until about 2007. And one of the reasons why I stopped, and I feel stupid saying this, I don't mean to brag, but I could just tell how this was going to end. I decided to focus on the Middle East where I really wasn't sure where it was going to end. But by 2006 or seven, it was readily apparent that at some point the Taliban were going to come back, that they were as much a fabric of the society as anybody else, and they weren't gone. And that the, you know, the American allies were too busy stealing and stealing heroin and all this horrible crap. When you describe sort of like coming into uh, Iraq and, and Beirut as a person um, who wasn't deeply familiar with the region beforehand, what was that learning curve like? And what's it like when you're trying to learn not about one story or one conflict, but like 15 overlapping conflicts that each have roots going back, you know, many, many decades and involve uh, ethnic factions, political movements, state intelligence. Like it's a very, very complicated mix, I would think. Yeah. And over time, obviously, your circles expand. And in fact, you know, they've expanded even what the work that I'm doing today, you can draw a line straight back to those moments. One thing that I had going for me when I first started out, though, in terms of being a foreign correspondent is, one, I had a focus on Al-Qaeda and, you know, the jihadist movements at that time. And I had, obviously, the invasion of Iraq was sort of out of left field. So that was a big adjustment. But originally, before I started deploying abroad, I covered two federal trials for John Walker Lind and Zacharias Mousseli. So because of those trials, I got a lot of a, a big view of what the U.S. government was seeing. And I started reading on my own and trying to understand the background of these movements. I mean, everybody was in the post-September 11th time period, like everybody was obsessed with the topic. But I was like looking at it at work all day, you know, early on. And so that really helped me. But none of us were particularly familiar with the U.S. military, which hadn't deployed in this kind of way for so long. And they weren't used to having us around. So that first year or so that I spent in Iraq, a lot was being thrown at you. And it was like, you're learning about like what happens after just an invasion in general. Then you have to learn about Iraqi society. Then you also have to understand how the U.S. military operates and how they work. So people specialized in stuff. And one of the things that I, I sort of initially specialized in was trying to figure out who was fighting back and who was fighting the Americans. And so I focused primarily on that. 
I would do human interest stories. I would do embeds, you know, and all this general assignment, foreign correspondence stuff. But I, I picked my spots in order to try to really understand things. And then once you understand something, then you pick another spot and pick another spot after that. And then 10 years later, you're really boring at dinner parties. So that sort of idea you had of, I kind of want to report more on ordinary people. How did that go? And what do you think about when you're trying to report on ordinary people in uh, in a culture and society that isn't your own without starting with a big social network? How do you start even just talking to ordinary people? Well, I mean, and this is the shout out to everybody. You know, we call them local staff. They've also been called translators and fixers, but it can be anybody. It can be somebody you meet. Um, you have to be the type of person that can set up and figure out networks like that. And so if I have a talent as a foreign correspondent, I'm pretty good at IDing people that can help me Yeah, and, and working with them and bringing them on board and stuff like that. If you can't do that, then it gets a lot harder because language isn't enough. You know, like if you can, you can really study Arabic, you know, and speak it quite beautifully. And so then you're still starting at a very basic spot because you don't understand anything about Iraqi society. <laughs> you don't understand tribal society and rivalries that go back all these different ways. So it's a mix of these things that you really have to learn. And then you also have to stay focused on what you're trying to cover because you, you're not on safari, you're at work, you know? And that's one of the things that, you know, you, over time you can pick up so much more. I was lucky living day-to-day -day life between assignments in Beirut with Lebanese friends. Because it's, it's this type of city where you can, this is what I, my favorite thing about it is. By the time I left, most of my friends weren't journalists. They were Lebanese. And that's a hard thing to experience in that part of the world. It's not that easy to really do and make that connection. So over all that time of those friendships, I learned, you know, just not, this is why I turned out with, with no intention whatsoever, I ended up an expert on Lebanon. And, you know, and at some point I realized that the war on terror was winding down and that it hadn't been my real dream to, you know, always work in the Middle East and, and so I just started trying to transition more into transnational crime and following that into Europe and taking these lessons that I learned from terrorist networks, particularly Hezbollah, as they operate all around the world. And so I basically pulled on that thread to find a new thing of interest. And that's what I do now in Europe and in covering intelligence. I, I do a lot with the FSB and intelligence services because I'm pretty well sourced out after covering the war on terror for so long. But I'm really interested in transnational networks, crime, intelligence. I'm fascinated by the, um, the gray. Like when is something legal and when is something illegal? Like some of it's so clear. One thing on this gateway project, you know, uh, nobody could ever tell me that moment where money goes from absolutely being illegal to being legal. You know, like, okay, it's cocaine in the containers illegal. We know that. If you sell that cocaine and the money you get, we know that's legal. What if a year later, you, your brother starts a pizzeria in Germany? At what year does that stop being, you know, yeah, a crime was committed, but what about the money? And this is something that nobody could ever answer. So these are the things that I find fascinating, strange stuff like that. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. 
Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. So you brought up that the podcast is uh, Gateway. It's out now. At least the first few episodes are out. And I think by the time this comes out, the the whole run should be available. It's about, in a broad sense, drug cartels and how they have come to be a major force in Europe. The smuggling networks, the money behind them, the political control that they are seeking and some of the sort of norms being broken around like uh, the murder of journalists and uh, the threatening of politicians. You sort of use this case of a Moroccan Dutch who is part of a sort of large network that is being brought to trial now in uh, Holland, which is maybe historically not great at prosecuting or stopping these kinds of networks, but is now faced with an adversary that um, is using tactics that have never really been seen in, in these countries. My first question, I guess, about it was like, when did you become interested in this story and like what pushed you to do it like as a podcast, as a, opposed to the way you've done other stories historically? Well, you know, it's it's a transition from my time in the Middle East. I'd been hired by BuzzFeed and sent to Europe to follow ISIS attacks across, you know, Bataclan and Belgium. And I'd been working in Antwerp as well. And during that period, you know, cops would tell me like, yeah, there's like, you know, 50, 60 of these guys, we got to track them down. There's, you know, it's dangerous. They're suicide bombers. But this is not actually the scariest thing on our plate right now. The cocaine trade is shifting into our ports. It's always been there but it's exponentially growing. This was around 2015, around the time that Ridwan Tagi started rising up. And so I got interested in that and had been doing a little bit of reporting on it. But, you know, I was stuck. I was at BuzzFeed. We were doing, there was all the Trump stuff. And it was always in the back of my mind, this was a really good story that I needed to take a look at. So when I was like locked up in COVID, I put together a whole plan on how to cover the entire thing. And I'd been working for Vice and my editors there, Max Daly, who does our drug stuff, uh, and Matt Champion, you know, were really supportive of it, was like getting me around trying to look at this as a big picture. And one of the things we I figured out was that, you know, it's such a weird big picture that you've actually got to tell a narrative to make it comprehensible. And I'd never done a podcast. I didn't know a lot about podcasting, but I knew Bradley Hope and Tom Wright, and they suggested we do one together. And that was pretty much all I needed to hear. And they are... Project Brazen is the name yeah. of uh, their company. Um, you did this as a uh, six-episode season. It felt like this is an incredible story, and yet you also probably could have done a season about several different cartels and several different threads of this story. Like, what made you choose to do Rezwan Taki rather than say like? the Kinahan gang out of Ireland and some of these other gangs that do cross the same story and ha literally have oh, yeah. business ties with these guys. One of the things that we were really looking at is looking at it from a globalization and industrial kind of perspective, because, you know, the people who do it, these cartel guys, are not generally fascinating characters, you know, on some level, it's like pretty basic, brutal stuff. I mean, you have to be clever and you have to be ruthless. But, you know, a lot of the stories are very much the same. What I was trying to figure out initially is, and this is what people kept telling me, and now the, the numbers have definitely borne this out, is that starting around 2012, virtually all of the cocaine coming into Europe started pouring into a handful of ports. In the past, it had been spread. It used to come in a lot through Spain. It would come in through Antwerp and Rotterdam, but it was also coming in through, you know, 
Italian ports, wherever there was a weakness in the line. But around 2012, and each year it would get worse and worse and worse, there was like an almost industrial scale level of pouring cocaine through Rotterdam, through Antwerp, which are like 30 miles apart and are basically speak the same language. In fact, the northern border of the Antwerp port is the Dutch border, which is how close these two places are to each other. And so to us, that was really interesting. Like, how did this become the single entryway or the gateway, as we we're calling it, uh, for Europe, which during this time became the largest single market for cocaine? It's past the U.S. And so, you know, these things, I think, are connected. And so I, I, it felt like also a good jumping off spot for to talk about globalization, financial deregulation, frankly, the role capitalism plays in all this. And uh, Tagi ended up being the person that we used because, one, it's really hard to report on ongoing cases in both Belgium and the Netherlands because of privacy laws and things like that. It's not quite like the U.S. So anything that was really ongoing in terms of an investigation, we couldn't get cooperation on. But while this was all going on, Tagi was getting increasingly crazier and crazier and crazier, and more things kept happening. His lawyer's been arrested for, like, smuggling messages out of the high security prison. So like, as this was happening, finally, I just said, stop it. We just have to do Tagi. The story's still ongoing. I don't know what's going to happen next. He's due to get a verdict in October, but I don't even know if they can go to verdict considering his lawyer just got out of prison last week on bail. There's kind of two threads to the story. There's the larger story of the factors that are turning parts of Europe into borderline narco states. And then there's a much more cinematic human story about the people who are literally in this cartel, many of whom are facing probably either prison or getting murdered by their own gang as this stuff all sort of starts to fall apart. As a writer who hadn't worked in this medium before, like what did you learn about structuring a story that has a sort of big picture and a, and a zoomed in picture and has these characters. Tell me about working at both of those levels of depth. Well, it was, you know, we kept joking. It was meat and vegetables. Like, you know, obviously you want action because it is a true crime. I mean, we call it true crime during the actual crime. So yep. this was a little bit harder than I thought in some ways it would be. But one of the things that we had going for us in doing that was I'd already figured out these were the, the broader points were the points that I wanted to make. And we'd actually done before the switch to Tagi, there'd been some other characters that we wanted to do, guys that are still at large. And so there was this big reservoir of sort of information that it built up. So I was incredibly comfortable talking about those aspects of it, while then we sort of backed up and found our character and went into our character's story, which was in some ways already fairly well known in the Dutch you know, media stuff. And so that, I think, worked out well. If you start out with Tagi, then it's harder to then break your vision of what his gang is like and how they're operating and even the environment that they come from and then take a step back and see it for, as a globalization issue, um, you know, see how it, it's abused in terms of immigration. And then so we kind of brought Tagi in to fit that instead of the other way around. So that really helped. It also took a lot of rewrites and some really patient producers, you know, some who don't want to be named because of the content and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of people had to work on because I had never written for this format before. What was your biggest learning about that? Like in, you know, sitting at a Google Doc, you're writing text similar to writing an article, and then now you're reading it aloud and hearing it back in the context of this, like, 30-minute episode that has to work both in its own right and as part of a larger story. What were the biggest learnings about writing in that form? You're always looking to simplify, and you're always looking to cut out as much as you can. You know, as they say, it's killing your babies. So that's what it really turned into was, all right, man, how much detail do we need to go into about Scarface? You know, and like early drafts, there was so much detail about Scarface and his thing. But then we realized he's a setup victim. Somebody can go back and do the history of Scarface, the first billionaire drug cartel guy, but we're, we're killing him right away. Yep. And then once I chopped that stuff out, you know, I could just say, okay, we're not going to use his name. We're just going to call him Scarface. Like people can Google that. And one of the things that I noticed was, you know, it's full of foreign names, 
we had to reduce because people are listening. It's harder to then you can't follow on a page. And you're throwing like three different Ridwans, a bunch of Moroccan names that like my Arabic gets pronounced like Lebanese Levant. The Moroccans speak a completely different dialect. And so, you know, going through all that stuff was really interesting because there were so many things that I would have put into a long form article that needed to go to keep it moving so that the listener could follow along in a way that a reader would have an advantage. By the time you're finished with that process, when it came down to recording, I'm the type of person who can write on the fly. And that was really important was once we had a good structure and we knew how we were going to go about telling the story, at that point, it was sort of where I was able to sort of weirdly relax with the Google Doc. I don't think the producer had to sit across from me and rewrite everything I was rewriting on the fly had as much fun as I did. But that was something that I could do on tape, which was try a couple things and then see what I liked and make sure it was in my voice. And it worked out, I think, okay. I think it sounds like me. When you are spanning across multiple continents, multiple jurisdictions, uh, multiple like journalistic norms about reporting in these places, like how did you think about what was and was not permissible to report fact check, et cetera, with this story? Well, one compared to things that I'd done in the past because of the, the audio format, you know, simply being because it's a podcast. And this was something that I had not quite considered when I undertook this endeavor was a lot of my background is working with people who don't want to talk and people who don't really want to appear in public with me either. It's I cover intelligence and crime and terrorism, stuff like that, special forces and operations. Getting people to sit and talk on mic is a lot harder. And so this was something where a lot of things that I had been told that normally I could work into a story and justify, a lot of that stuff had to be left out because there was no really great way of, of putting it together. And I couldn't get those people on tape because, you know, they're just not, not going to do it, you know? And the side thing was I, I was very struck by this because I've got pretty good intelligence sources in a lot of these countries and so when I took the project, I thought, well, this will be, you know, a little bit easier. I'm just going to be asking them about crime and people across several different services that will answer my questions about Putin or about ISIS in like a heartbeat. Nothing. They don't want to talk about cocaine. Hmm. It's almost a verboten subject. And they say it's criminal, but it's not. It's, it's also just like they're trying to keep this a very low profile issue and the money is so big and goes so many different places, a smart intelligence person just does not want to get involved. And like that really sort of set me back in a weird way. I figured I'd be able to get cops to sit and talk on a mic, and they didn't. So when you work across these countries, you've got to deal with, and this is what I find interesting about the project and what I try to make a theme of my work, is if you want to learn about like Ridwan Taghi and his effect on Dutch society, go to Het Parole. Those guys are amazing. Two of the reporters, Walter and Paul, appear on the podcast. These guys are amazing local journalists. You know, in Antwerp, Joris van der Aap, amazing journalist. On the Kinahans, as you mentioned, Nicole Talent, she's great. But everybody's got their parochial beat that they've got to cover. And so what I get interested in is the step back on that and mm -hmm. seeing how the Kinahans actually interact with Ridwan Taghi. And this is the thing that I'm going to be pulling on on a thread probably for the rest of my career, because it's what, you know, I pulled on this thread throughout terrorism and other things like that is I, I want to know about those because that's where people have a tendency to have narrow views. Yep. Forget the journalists. Cops have told me this because remember they have to deal with 27 different law enforcement agencies across Europe while trying to make cases against guys who live in Dubai, who money launder in Spain, who move the drugs through Belgium on their way to Berlin. So when I talk to these cops about it, they go, and we have 49 detectives that cover narcotics. They've all got college degrees, university degrees. You got to be a detective. But how many of them can really do sophisticated financial investigations? You know, and so what you find out is nobody's really looking past their own prosecutions or their yard. So that's where I find fer very fertile ground as a journalist. It's trying to mine those areas in between. Let's talk a little bit about the Dubai angle. Uh, the first time I ever thought about this was uh, Suketu Mehta wrote a book about Mumbai. And basically, all of the Mumbai gang leaders were living in Dubai. I think some of them living in the same hotel. So literally just passing each other in the elevators while they're calling hits on each other's soldiers 
uh, <laughs> hundreds of miles away, but they have cordial relationships. So once people establish themselves in this way, um, as it seems like the, the trajectory of uh, the, the leadership of these cocaine cartels, you become untouchable in Dubai. And I, I won't say that it legitimizes the business, but it, it makes it appear more like a long term business like any other business where some young people are going to die in Europe. But the C-suite is basically going to remain uninterrupted in Dubai conducting this business and with a, a friendly uh, government that has basically said, um, if you don't cause problems here in Dubai, it's not a problem for us. How do you cover that story? And what are the ways that a journalist can look into that? Because I think that the the true crime story of people being murdered on the streets of uh, Antwerp of Amsterdam is always going to get more newspaper coverage, but in some ways it's a um, red herring in terms of like who is actually making those decisions in the long run. Well, this is Dubai is a fascinating part of it. By coincidence, they don't have extradition treaties with a lot of these countries. I think that those guys know they're on a leash. I don't think the C-suite runs cartels from Dubai. I think that that's like upper middle level management. I mm. think there are people above that. It's funny you mentioned Mumbai. Uh, Mumbai and Pakistan both came up frequently because I have a theory, and it might be an urban legend, I don't know, I'm still working it out, but it does really make sense, is that when you look at the lifestyle, a lot of these guys, Tagi, a bunch of the other dudes, even the Kinahans, it's really not a liquid business, cocaine. It's tough, man. They, you've got to have a lot of cash. You've got to move cash around as we were talking about crypto and diamonds and stuff like that. And as a result, when you're in Dubai, let's say you're a Kinahan guy, you've got to send money back. And I've heard as much as, let's say, 20 million euros a month have to get sent back to Dublin to take care of the network in Dublin. There's guys in jail. There's people who are hitters and all this stuff. Uh, on top of it, it takes forever to get paid. I'm told it's about a year to 18 months to get paid for a shipment of cocaine in Europe. So these guys do have these really weird financial pressures. And I have a belief that behind or above them are people who fund that. Mm. I think there's a guy in Dubai who you can go to who will give you $2 million for a year and you give him the $2 million back with big interest in cash or whatever. And he's never in a room with money or drugs. He's just keeping you afloat while you're waiting for the payoff for the metric ton that comes in to Antwerp. In that year period. I think that level's almost got to exist for the whole system to operate. And I've heard rumors like there's a Mumbai, like, you know, supermarket magnet who's got a secret life as Kaiser Soze. You know, I mean, it's entirely possible, but, you know, these could be urban legends, but I haven't quite identified. But every once in a while, there will be a picture that pops out of Dubai of some trafficker that the cops will come across. And there will often be like a completely anonymous businessman in a nice suit that no one has ever seen before and you can't find on Facebook because I've tried to find a couple of these guys. So the, you know that's where it gets really interesting. But essentially the deal with Dubai is don't commit crime here. Buy stuff, invest, you know, buy local, <laughs> buy local, buy apartments, you know, and all this stuff. And the security services will slow walk everything that comes against you. They will ignore the Belgians. They will send the Belgians back their paperwork a year later and say this part's wrong and keep delaying and delaying and harassing. I think if the U.S. calls, their opinion's a little bit different. But Belgium and Holland don't have a lot of leverage against the UAE. And uh, eventually you do get arrested or killed or deported. And then, you know, the local security services take all your stuff. Another good business. Yeah. I think that that's, and I think the minute you can't pay bribes to stay, they extradite you and take all your stuff. And so they've got a motivation. I think, I wouldn't say it's like a government program, but I think that a lot of colonels and various security services in some of these countries end up in luxury apartments that they took away from a drug lord. When he couldn't pay bribes anymore, when the heat got too high and the U.S. started making calls, so they said, screw it, send him. Uh, you know, there's, it's dirty. This much money can't be circling around without entering the economy. And we're talking like at least 10 billion euros a year. So everywhere you look, I mean, like you see the rumors are like beach resorts in Morocco, beach resorts in Albania. I mean, places that are, you know, West adjacent that are modern countries that are sort of democratic. 
but aren't quite on the edge of picking up everybody Interpol asks about or whatever. You know, there's there's this weird, again, gray world where you can be semi-legal. You can buy Turkish citizenship for like half a million dollars, and it's illegal to extradite a Turkish citizen to another country. Sounds like a great deal. And, you know, how long I can get away with running a cocaine cartel from Turkey, I don't know what my odds are about that. But, you know, if you see what I'm saying is everybody's got these deals, man. They're all over the place. So people do move around. But then you do see, like, the Kinahans appear to be a little trapped. Like, maybe they can, you know, other guys have tried to leave Dubai. The heat's been getting high and have been trying to find different places maybe in Asia to go. And what they're finding is that Asia is not offering them visas. Is one of the reasons the Kinahans are kind of trapped because I've seen a YouTube video about their gang? Like, is is part of this when you become famous, some of these systems of protection start to break down? The Kinahans, I mean, obviously they're notorious to Spanish and Irish law enforcement, and they've busted a bunch of cases. You know, Christie, the father, there's two, you know, Christie Jr., but Christie's been in jail in Belgium before, jail in Ireland. Uh, interesting fact about him is that he's a language savant and he ended up teaching himself like six languages in prison in Belgium. And this is one of the reasons why he's such a good drug dealer is because he can go and meet with anybody in whatever language, very useful skill for crime. Uh, but what happened was, yeah, the son heir apparent, Danny just got really obsessed with boxing and hanging out with boxers and MMA. And they started trying to wander through MMA gyms. But then they wanted the celebrity. Instead of just keeping like a low-key, dingy place in Spain, they turned it into like a five-star club and everybody would – they had their own pub upstairs. They got away to Dubai from that. But that's – when they started really going after, particularly the association with Tyson Fury, if you start popping on boxing on the U.S. law enforcement radar, the FBI loves organized crime boxing cases. This is old school for them. They've been doing that since day one. And so that really gets your attention because then you've got wire fraud, you've got racketeering, and now there's an excuse for the FBI, let's say, to go after somebody like the Kinahans who doesn't move drugs to the U.S., who's just been pissing off Ireland and Spain forever and might not have the juice to get it done with UAE. So I think it was, but yeah, absolutely. If, if Daniel Kinahan stays out of boxing, I mean, I'm not saying they would have gotten away. They're always going to be under trial and under investigation. But I think it's signed as warrant because once the FBI really wants you, even the UAE is going to give you up. So in some ways, you are looking for all of these secret people. Like You're, you're less focused on the Kinahans because there's already a YouTube uh, culture around them. You're looking for the guy who's lending all these guys money, the secret uh, unknowns that exist there. And if a lot of the risk comes not necessarily from like law enforcement itself, but like from fame and literally just having your face on the internet is a risk. Like, where does that leave you? Like when you start poking around parts of the hornet's nest that have been previously unexplored, what are you thinking? I don't just mean in terms of your own safety, but also in terms of just like, how do you, do reporting when there has been no reporting done before you in some of these corners. You need help. Yeah. I mean, just straight up, like you've got to get somebody, hopefully who you can trust, who knows something and start pointing you in the right direction. Whether it's a cop, it can be an NGO, it can be an academic, it can just be somebody from the neighborhood or whatever. That's where you've got to understand the terrain of what you're trying to report on. Because you know where the lines are. Like I've dealt with a lot of different violent organizations over the years. I know what pisses them off, what doesn't. With crime, you can kind of tell too. Like it gets even more blunt in some ways. It's a business decision, and ninety-nine percent of the time, it's bad business to kill a reporter. You know, just they're cold. These are really ruthless, cold people. So you consider that, but you really have to know what you're doing in terms of keeping track of like really what are you working on? Making sure that you're not being sent down a road, which does happen. It's happened to me a lot in covering terrorism cases, and I expect it to happen anytime in organized crime, is where sources are sending you down a road to screw with somebody they don't like. Right. You know, and suddenly are you a tool of the enemy? Well, that can start getting you into trouble, man. You know, so that's what you really have to watch out for. And in fact, I was told once by Hezbollah guys, I said, you know what I do? I'm reporting on you. And they, yeah, we don't care. You know, it's fine. 
you seem nice. And I said, well, what do I have to watch out for with your organization? And they said, honestly, if you do something that's right, if we know it's true, then, you know, we're going to get irritated. Maybe somebody will deny it or refuse to comment on it, but nobody's going to get mad at you. You're doing your job. If you start saying stuff about us that isn't true and that we can tell is being fed to you by our enemies, then we're going to start wondering what your deal is. And then, you you know, they weren't threatening me, but they were like, that's when we're going to lose trust. Right now, you know, you could go write your story. You know, I've had so many people over the years tell me, go write your little story, man. Come on. So this is what you balance. In building those networks, you, you described sort of, you know, academics and G- people at NGOs, potentially intelligence people like it seems like if you go looking for it, you're the most likely to find the person who wants to play you, right? Like <laughs> the first person you find is not going to be a uh, high quality. Like how do you think not when you're working on a specific story, but you're working on this larger career as a journalist, like how do you find these people and how do you vet their intentions about giving you information? Well, there's, I think it's the French spy show, The Bureau. I can't remember, but there's a great line about this is where two spooks are evaluating somebody that's come to them looking to help them. And the one guy looks at him and goes, what do you think? And he, the, you know, his, his partner just goes, I fucking hate it when they come to us. Right. You know, like I want to identify the person that I think might be able to help and then see if they're willing to help. And, you know, uh, then you test people over time, even academics, even pundits and analysts and stuff. I, even in the Middle East, I didn't really love throwing lots of analyst quotes into my stories. You know, I, I just rubs me a little weird, but I would do it uh, with a handful of analysts. But there are people who I watched for the longest time and knew them, and I knew how they worked, and I knew what they thought, and I knew how much I could trust them. But that's why you can't just one-source things, man. You know, and so that's that's, you always have to consider... No intelligence source I have ever had woke up hoping to just keep me on the right track. Right. And I have a pretty good relationship with some people where they ignore me. I'll ask about something and they don't want to talk about it and they just ignore the message. And my poor editor sits there going, do you have anything? And I'm like, "Ah, not yet, not yet, not yet. And if they do come back to me, now I know that for some reason, whether it's internal or whether it's their government, does kind of want to talk about that. But nobody's really ever 100% trying to help you. But we get that with sources all the time. Every NGO you go to has an, you know, they're trying to help people. They're also you know, trying to promote it in a certain way. I mean, even our conversation, I'm trying to promote a podcast, you know. I'm enjoying it and I've always wanted to come on it. But, you know, this is these, these are just normal journalistic stuff. But it does get to a high degree because my biggest fear is somebody sending me after somebody else. That's where it gets dangerous. That and local corruption. Local journalists that have to deal with local corrupt officials, those are going to get hurt. You see it in Malta, Slovakia, places like that. If you're going to get killed covering local crime, corruption, bad cops, that's the most dangerous thing you can do. And um, we can cut this out if you don't want me to mention it, but you are located in Albania now? Yeah. You can say that. And do you stay out of like Albanian issues out of uh, like a Dubai style respect for the local authorities there? Or what's your relationship to Albania? I'm currently here sort of for logistical reasons. I needed to redo some visa stuff after COVID things expired from inside the EU. And I've spent a lot of time reporting in the Balkans. And so I've worked in Kosovo and Bosnia and Serbia. But, you know, Albanians are really different. Uh, They are not South Slavs. They don't share the sort of full-on culture that you see that's common between a lot of the rest of the region. So, and I'd heard really nice things about Tirana, so I thought I'd move here um, and get to know the Albanians a little bit. And I didn't realize that it's like the best food ever. And so that's been one great joy. But yeah, there is a big uh, Albanian connection, obviously, to organized crime. They all know about it. I mean, it's a very small country and this is something that's going on. And so I'm, I'm trying to learn about that a little bit, but not really aggressively right now. I'm not, I'm not working on a specific Albanian organized crime project, but it's still a good thing to learn about the country in case I do. You published a story since the podcast came out uh, about this uh, Qatari uh, sheikh, one of the largest uh, jewel holders uh, out there who through his personal assistant got conned out of 
a bunch of uh, high value gems in a scheme that involved sort of a psychic hotline kind of a setup. Tell me about like how that story came to you and also what it's like reporting a story where basically the person is trying to fight the reporting, I would say mostly out of embarrassment and wanting their name to stay out of the news. Is that accurate? Obviously, um, the, the victim, alleged victim, I guess, nobody's been convicted yet, but, uh, you know, is the former prime minister and foreign minister of Qatar. He's called HBJ, it's Hamid bin Jassim. And he's a cousin of the emir. He used to run the Qatari Investment Fund. He owns a bunch of London um, and is considered one of the most, you know, in his time, sort of as prime minister and foreign minister of Qatar, just an incredibly powerful figure around the Middle East. I jokingly said while I was reporting on it, I'd never really been intimidated on reporting on somebody before until I realized that he had brokered ceasefires in five wars that I'd actually already covered. And, you know, one of my sources said to me, this guy can literally get Tony Blair or Hezbollah on the phone just as easily, like in one phone call. And so that that, that was really interesting. But what essentially happened is, and it's it's a sad tale. And I, I you know, except for maybe the thief, I, I feel bad for everybody involved. His personal assistant, who I'm told is uh, from, you know, Asia, had been is a guest worker. You know, you live full time in your employer's house and serve as a personal assistant. Or it's a tough life, uh, although the money is excellent compared to Philippines or Malaysia or wherever she's from. I've never identified exactly where she's from. And she was lonely and she spent time on this website that, you know, offered spiritual and, and love advice and, you know, just seems kind of bland, hippie, new age, you know, whatever, uh, horoscope stuff. And she did that for about a year until she found this advisor, Giovanni. And Giovanni uh, started helping her out. And I don't know when Giovanni realized that he was not just scamming a woman out of like tens of thousands of dollars. Because he was, he was scamming her, he definitely. And he took about $140,000, I think, from her. Um, but over time, I think it dawned on him who, who she was working for and what she had access to. And he essentially convinced her that 17 pieces of the Sheikh's jewelry collection needed to be cleansed of their bad auras or else misfortune would strike the family. So on four occasions, she FedExed him. Based off the receipts I've seen, they're worth $90 million, except that's only 10 pieces. So the seven other pieces, the values... I've had people tell me, we don't want to put a a hard number on it, but I would be shocked if it was under 120 million total. And she FedExed the stuff to him and he did not return the jewels with their auras cleansed. And that's when she realized she got scammed. And in in a moment, I just find, I wish I'd been able to speak with her. It's just such incredible bravery. The minute she knew what she'd done and that he'd gotten her, she went to her boss immediately and told him. And at that stage, they opened an FBI investigation. I don't know what's happened to her, except she, from what I can tell, she hasn't been charged and the FBI can, considers her a victim. But this guy in Florida had about $120 million in jewels, FedEx to him, no signature required, no insurance on the package. I've got all the tracking receipts. It's hilarious as you watch it go from step to step to step across to Patterson, Florida. And uh, he ended up getting caught because he scammed some jewelers into recutting it, which is what everybody had feared. And this is how I came across the story, was I was living and working in Antwerp on Gateway. I had a bunch of connections in the diamond industry, and I quickly heard about it. And when I asked about it, I was told, can you please not report on this until there's an arrest? And I said, okay, that's a fair deal. And so once John Lee got arrested, the reason he got arrested was he had found crooked jewelers, just like was anticipated in, in Antwerp, except he found them in New York City. And they cut one of the bigger stones, recut it, and actually made it nicer, increased its value, and got new GIA certificates, the certificates that proved the jewels' value and ownership, and uh, had convinced Christie's to sell it at auction for $35 million dollars. And by coincidence, a guy, uh, you know, all of these jewelers, nobody's noticed. A few of them are definitely dirty. A few of them are innocently involved. Christie certainly had checked the GIA certificates and didn't think anything was amiss. They were advertising it on the internet as one of the biggest sales of the year. And some guy who really knew the jewelry industry saw it and was like, man, that's Thani's pink diamond. That's HBJ's diamond. And he called him and said, did you lose your pink diamond? And he said, yeah. And they called the FBI, the FBI called Christie's, 
And considering how elaborate the whole plot was by John Lee, who's currently you know facing these charges, alleged plot or whatever, you know he spent four years on it. He got her to do it, but his plan was to FedEx it to his home address in his own name, and then run around New York. Like he sold the, the thirty-one million dollar one for eight million in loose diamonds and watches. Like all just the most obvious stuff in the world. It took the FBI like an hour to really catch it. But at this stage, we can't figure out how much was recovered. That's what nobody will tell me. We know the Christie's diamond was recovered. We know that like 40 smaller diamonds that had been melted out of one of the necklaces, those appear to have been recovered. But other than that, nobody's talking. So clearly, I think some of it's out in the wind. John Lee had already sold it before his arrest. Uh, the whole thing's been deadly quiet. So when you're reporting on somebody who can afford to buy your news organization just to put you in a cage in the newsroom, which is what I kept joking about this, uh, it does get a little nerve-wracking. But we had everything, and I talked to some people, and by all accounts, he's a pretty decent guy. I mean, as far as you know, very, very rich, powerful people go, he's pretty sensible and reasonable. Apparently, he believes the assistant wasn't in on it. Every investigator I spoke with believes she was not in on it. I believe she wasn't in on it. I will say every single person involved in the case assumed she had to be in on it when they first heard about it. And over time, you realize she's actually been duped. So it's, it's tragic, but nobody got hurt. So it's, it's, it's the rare case where I had a big story that nobody got killed. <laughs> and like when someone is sort of fighting against something like this being reported out of that sense of sort of embarrassment... How do you justify why like someone should talk to you when sort of, um, yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not a victimless crime, but like the people who are trying to suppress the story are actually on some levels, the victims of the crime. Right. And there was even some discussion of this, like, okay, what's the public interest here? Right. In naming the victim, you know, and well, his son's buying Manchester United. He's a former foreign minister, you know, he's on the Brookings Institute board. It's the largest jewel heist possibly in history. We're not sure, you know, but it, it's really up there. <laughs> like Top easily. five, definitely. Top five, definitely might be the highest. Yep. You know, the problem with jewel heists is you're never really sure how big they are because everybody lies on the insurance. But yep. in this case, we've got the actual jewels and a list of them. Um, so, I mean, look, there's a couple different reasons why people talk to journalists. I think that, you know, a lot of my colleagues who are very, very good reporters but, you know, sometimes they confuse, like, the reason they called you is you're at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and they need to get this story into that paper, and you're, you know, don't let your ego confuse that, you know. But in other cases, to get people to talk to you, you've got to know more than that. There's got to be a reason for them. They, they, they want to hear you out. And that's one of the ways that I was able to develop sources and sort of government officials over the years was I was spending all this time in Iraq and Beirut, and they knew I saw stuff, and they wanted to hear what I saw. So they were willing to tell me a little bit on the side to trade. Um, So it's a little bit of that. But the thing for me was I had all the paper. So I was trying to tell the story of really what happened. And that was trying to get people to cooperate. And that gets a little dicey because everybody involved has professional obligations. There were investigators, either cops or, you know, private investigators who've been tasked you know, by various firms around the world. They hired a lot of people on this. And, you know, those guys all have NDAs and responsibilities to keep their clients' secrets. So you're sympathetic to that, but you also have all the receipts and know who it is and you know you're going to print it. So you end up having to work with people a little bit. And sometimes they'll cooperate and sometimes they ignore you. And, you know, in HBJ's case and Sheikh's case, he knew about this two weeks before it came out and they didn't say anything. So, you know, I didn't ambush him or anything like that. And it is, it must be kind of embarrassing, but you know, I've done dumber stuff. (laughs) Mitch, thank you so much for this interview. I'm glad we uh, made it happen. Uh, 10 years in the making. I hope you do more seasons of gateway. I don't know if that's, uh, is is there uh, is there thought of uh, expanding it? You know, we'll see how this one does, because it's it's a really tough, complicated subject. But there's a plan for that. But we also need to see whether it's something that can be, you know, you want to sustain it. 
Based on my YouTube history, I would listen to about 15 seasons of the show. So I'm hoping we at least get a second one. <laughs> hey, man, I'm all for that. Well, that's one of the things that's cool about this is now that I've spent a year or whatever completely obsessed with the subject of how cocaine moves around the world, there's a million different stories to go chase down you know, in a bunch of different places. And so it's definitely not the last time I'm going to be working on it, but you know, we'll see how it goes. Let's see, you know, podcasting is a new frontier for me, man. I'm, I have no idea how these things work and I don't even know how success is judged. So. <laughs> uh, I'm going to tell you that I'm about a decade in and I don't know how to answer those questions either. So <laughs> keep doing it and uh, we'll see. Yeah. Um, that's what me in a marketing meeting was basically like, all right, let's see if that works. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast. Thanks to my guest, Mitch Prothero. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to Megan Valley for doing the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. Thanks to all the listeners. And we'll be back with a brand new episode next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.